This is perfect. Testing. 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 One, two, three. Here I am. <laughs> oh, you mad. You mad. You mad. That's a fool. So ghostly. So beautiful. Haunting. Alluvial fans. Over and over and over. Over and over again. It's like nothing in the world. San Francisco. Aspects of Zandiacal. Decadent. Slander. I do anything to get it back. <laughs> Perform a world. A totally fulfilled person. Perform a world. Crayolas. Totally. Totally. Totally thrilled. Let's just do it. You have me. That's right. You have me. Hi, this is Andy Moore, your curator in a place I like to call Andy's Treasure Trove. Welcome to episode number four. I'm coming to you from beautiful Santa Cruz, California. I'm still here taking some photographs for a coffee table book that I'm working on. And in fact, you can see some of the photos I've been taking on my website, andystreasuretrove.com, on the page for podcast episode number four. Take a look. I was recently on the phone with my good friend Tom Powers, who used to live in San Francisco but now lives in normal Illinois. He started to tell me some stories about some odd things that have happened to him at movie theaters over the years. And at a certain point I said, stop, let me record these stories for my podcast. So I did, and here, have a listen. I'm the academic advisor for the School of Theater at Illinois State University, and we have a long and glorious reputation for turning out good actors. The founding members of the Steppenwolf Theater Company were mainly graduates from Illinois State. Uh, Terry Kinney, who can be seen on Oz, has just directed his first feature. His friend Jeff Perry, who I think played one of the wacky cops on Nash Bridges, they went up and joined Gary Sinise and started the Steppenwolf Theater Company, and then they brought their friends from Illinois State, John Malkovich and Lori Met calf and Gary Cole. Uh, I think six of the original nine actors in Steppenwolf were from Illinois State. And we still turn out the occasional success story. We claim Sean Hayes, although Sean was actually a music major, but he hung out with the theater department. He minored in theater and acted in some of the shows. What do you see out your window there? Window? What window? I have a, an office with a door that closes but I suspect it was, it might have been a storage closet once upon a time, so I have no window. Oh, I see. When I open the door, I can see the stairs, and I see students going to and from classes, and if I go out the office and look out the window, I see the rooftop of the adjoining building, and off in the distance, I see the College of Business, a brand new building with beautiful classrooms, and our building is dilapidated with falling ceiling tiles and rusting, and they brought the president of the university here for a tour, and he looked out at the new College of Business and looked at our building, and he said, now I know how the prisoners on Alcatraz felt when they looked at San Francisco. <laughs> wow. Well, I was going to say it's kind of the, the fate of show people or theater people out in the footlights they're all splendor but in the but the dressing rooms are awful <laughs> right right so we're training them for the real world and there's a kind of camaraderie i think that grows up when you have a bunch of people in you know straightened circumstances and they all uh, they all get together and do wonderful work 
I got to direct for the first time last fall a 10-minute play written by one of our playwriting students, and it was two characters. A woman comes home after a long day at work and finds the devil sitting on her sofa, and he offers to trade her a used car for her soul, and she thinks she can do better, and so a negotiation ensues. And it was just great. Actors are wonderful. They'll do anything you ask them to. I went to, since it was my first time as a director, I went to all the faculty members and I said, give me one good piece of advice. And several of them said the same thing, which is, make the actors believe it was their idea. (laughs) Whatever it is. Whatever it is. And uh, it was great. When they finally did the performance, I was a nervous wreck and they were just loose and casual and they did a great job. Do you really believe they were loose and casual? I mean, isn't everybody nervous before something like that? I think They've done it enough that they seemed very relaxed with the whole deal. Wow. I was impressed. Well, that was, that was just a, a sort of a treat for me to do that. My, my real full-time job is uh, helping the theater students graduate. Uh, it's always sort of sad when they come in a week before graduation and find out there's some requirement they haven't met and they are going to be taking summer school. So if I'm doing my job well, I... I alert them to that fact early on rather than at the very end of the process. And I also teach a cinema studies course on international cinema. It's a non-Western film. It's a general education course, so I get students from across the campus, and most of them have never seen a subtitled film before. This is normal Illinois, the heartland of America. Uh, A lot of our students come from the Chicago suburbs, but they come down here to the cornfields, and they decide they're going to get a a university requirement out of the way, so they take my non-Western film class, and I try to sort of seduce them with entertaining films and then the really slow stuff I save for later on after it's too late to drop the course. (laughs) And they actually have to do some reading, which they weren't counting on, of subtitles. Uh, They have to read subtitles and they also have to read some books and articles. And it's getting to be a struggle that they have to pay attention to movies and they have to to think about movies and more and more they're used to text messaging while movies are going on and watching movies in a somewhat distracted fashion. So sometimes I sit in the front of the theater and try to ignore the little blue screens that are popping up all around the room. But I think next semester I'm going to tell them they got to turn those things off. We were going to talk about my experiences in movie theaters. Since I've spent a lot of hours in movie theaters over the years, I would say these days I probably only see a couple dozen movies a year, but in my youth it was probably closer to 300 movies a year. And it seems to me if you spend enough time in movie theaters, it's just inevitable that life is going to intrude into that dark cocoon that you've enveloped yourself in. I think my most memorable experience I really didn't provoke. My friend Pat and I had gone to a movie at the Seaview Twin in Pacifica. This would have been about 1986, and I was living down in this little seaside town south of San Francisco, and we went to a Saturday evening screening of Jagged Edge with Glenn Close playing an idealistic young attorney, and now Glenn Close plays a 
an evil older attorney on TV. But Glenn Close and I think it was Jeff Bridges, who was an accused killer who may or may not be guilty. And we were watching this movie, and it was getting pretty tense, and we'd reached the part where the killer, and we don't know who it is yet, is breaking into Glenn's house, and he smashed through the glass in the front door, and he's reaching around to open the lock. And all of a sudden, I'm aware that people behind me in the theater have all stood up. I thought, that's an odd reaction. And then they start flowing past me, streaming down the aisles towards the exits up by the screen. And so Pat and I were cool. We sort of stand up and we look around and we see that there's a really large naked man walking down the aisle screaming, believe in God, and he just cleared the place. We went with everybody else, and we went out the exits, and we stood in the foggy night and waited till the police came and took the man away, and then we all trooped back into the theater, and the management very thoughtfully rewound the film to the point where we'd been interrupted, and we got to see uh, the killer break in and, and get what he had coming to him, and I don't remember if it was Jeff Bridges uh, or not. It was just an, it was an odd event. But as I was saying, a lot of the times it seems to me I've, I've helped to, to provoke some of the trouble. In the mid-1980s, about 86, I'd seen this movie by Jonathan Demme called Something Wild. I think it's a wonderful movie with uh, Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith and crazy Ray Liotta when he was still a very fresh face on the screen. And I had told my friend Ira Rothstein, who teaches cinema down at San Francisco City College now, and who's always been a little skeptical of my taste in movies, I told him he had to come see Something Wild. So it was screening on a double bill with Blue Velvet at the old York Theater down at 24th and York in San Francisco in the Mission District. And we went to it, and fortunately there were at least some people in the audience because while Blue Velvet was playing... And it's a pretty scary, demented movie. There's a guy down in the front of the theater who's just laughing uproariously. And being the sort of controlling person that I am, I decide I'm going to go down and ask the guy to be quiet. So I walk down, and I look at this guy. He's a big, bearded, burly biker guy. And I I say to him, you know, excuse me, sir, would you mind not laughing so loud? And he looks up at me, and he says, are you the manager? I go, no, no, I just was wondering if you could hold it down. And then I go back to my seat. And so a couple minutes later, up on the screen, uh, Frank, played by crazy Dennis Hopper, is, is beating up our hero, Kyle McLaughlin. And I realize this guy's walking up and down the aisle saying, where is that guy? Where is that guy? And I'm sinking down into my seat, and fortunately, uh, there were enough people that I could retain my anonymity at that point, but I didn't go out for popcorn at intermission. Nobody pointed at you. Here he is, right over here. (laughs) No. Wow. Um, And did you memorize that guy's face so you... If you ever saw him again, you could run in the other direction, or...? I'm hoping that he won't be listening to this podcast. But I've sort of learned my lesson over the years to to pick my battles in terms of who I ask to be quiet. There was there was one time when I took on an entire audience. This is really one of my proudest moments as a moviegoer. Back in the early 70s, the uh, Pacific Film Archives in Berkeley used to use Wheeler Auditorium on the Berkeley campus for big screenings, and it was one of the best places in the Bay Area to see a movie. A huge screen, really good projection, and they had the film called Solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky. This was the, the original Russian film that was later made into a sort of bad film with George Clooney, but... Uh, 
people were really anticipating this. I think we knew about Tarkovsky, but we hadn't really been exposed to his films. So it was a packed auditorium at Wheeler. holds hundreds and hundreds of people. And the movie was late getting started, and the audience just got really edgy. You know, it was one of those, those circumstances where, where people will finally start clapping and stomping and hooting to get the film to start. And so they finally started the film, and it was very widescreen. And there was either a problem with the print or some problem in the registration and the projector because you could see a little bit of the frame line every time there was a cut in this widescreen film. So the audience hadn't lost their sort of boisterousness from, you know, chanting and cheering for the movie to start. And once the movie started, they proceeded to just laugh and laugh every time there was a cut in the film. And this was bugging me, because Solaris is not a funny movie by any stretch of the, the imagination. It's very slow. The villain in Solaris is, is the ocean. So it's like a very cerebral movie. And these people are laughing at every single cut. Every time there's a change of shot, the audience laughs. So I decide, finally, what I'm going to do is I'm going to laugh Every time there isn't a cut, so they would laugh, and then the scene would start, and I would, as loud as I could, I'd just go, (laughs) and after a couple times of doing that, people got really upset and started yelling, shut up, you know, get rid of that guy, you know, all this stuff. And so we were kind of having this, this tug of war during the first half of the film. And then there's an intermission. And maybe a half dozen people found me and gathered around me and said, we would like you to leave. And I said, okay, I'll leave, but first I'd like you to hear me out. I'd like to make my case. And this being Berkeley, obviously they're obligated to let everybody have a say. And so I was saying that I thought this was a really fine movie and, you know, I'd come to see it and the audience wasn't treating it respectfully. And we talked and they finally decided that I could stay. People still talk about the time that I told Steve Abrams that he was breathing too loudly uh, during a film. Uh, but in, in my own defense, it was the conversation, which has a very nice soundtrack. And, and so, and then I've been accused of shushing a baby, uh, but I claim that I was actually shushing the baby's mother, who should not have brought her child to a screening of Apocalypse Now in the first place. <laughs> and besides, the babysitter's union gets short shrift in situations like that. There you go. Here you go. I've driven 50 miles. That was in Iowa. I'd driven over to the twin, the Quad Cities to see Apocalypse Now, and I didn't want no crying baby uh, competing with my sound effects. That's right. And besides, the smell of napalm in the morning is not healthy for infants and toddlers. This is true. And probably my last story, my, my maybe my scariest moment, was like like some friends who probably should remain nameless. I've always believed that when you buy a ticket to a multiplex, that entitles you to a day-long admission to all the movies that they're showing. Oh, you're one of those people. I used to be, anyway. Uh, I was uh, living down in Los Angeles in, in, in Pasadena, and I'd found this movie theater over in Monrovia, an adjacent town that was uh, had low prices, and it was pretty easy to slip from one theater into another. So I'd seen, I don't remember what the first film was, but I, I snuck into, I think it was Bad Boys with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. And I was sitting there watching the film, and all of a sudden there's a policeman standing next to me with the usher. And he says, would you come with us, sir? And so I said what every good American would say, is there a problem, officer? <laughs> How fast was I going? And the usher looks at me and says to the policeman, oh, he's not the one. 
And they go off in search of apparently some kid who'd been running through the theaters causing trouble. Oh, but you, of course, jumped to the wrong conclusion, the wrong guilty, guilty, guilty conclusion. Oh, I was, I, and in, in, in retrospect, I'm so sorry that I didn't take that moment to ask them to adjust the focus on the film, but I didn't have the hubris to do that. Maybe to tie things up, uh, many of us were students at San Francisco State in the film department, and there was one semester when we were just having the best time. Uh, we were taking a class from James Broughton, the wonderful poet and filmmaker. James was teaching us a class on experimental filmmaking in the evening and in the morning. Uh, Peter Kubelka, the mad Austrian filmmaker, uh, was teaching a class on, on his own films, and they brought in Stan Brackage as a guest artist one time. It was just the best semester ever. But they told us a story that the three of them, Broughton and Kubelka and Brackage, had gone to a mid-morning sneak preview screening of The Godfather Part Two, And I think it was out at the Alexandria Theater out there on Geary. And the three of them were sitting watching this film, and the way Broughton related it, Kubelka was sort of chortling watching The Godfather Part Two, not liking it and saying, this is great, they're going to lose all the money they made on the first part. Brackage was just entranced by the patterns of light flickering up on the screen, and Broughton was just saying, it's so nice outside, why don't we get out of the theater and go do something fun? <laughs> And supposedly later that day, they all got a phone call from Kenneth Anger, who was out on the Golden Gate Bridge threatening to throw himself off, and they jumped in a car and rushed out to save him. And the message that I think all of the students took away from James Broughton's class was the one that he would tell us. He'd always say, life is more important than movies. And when I was thinking about all these different experiences that I've had over the years and working in movie theaters, hanging out in movie theaters, getting in trouble in movie theaters. I was thinking, yeah, but life's more fun when you go to the movies. <laughs> now, wait, you worked in movie theaters, too? I worked at the Castro Theater for about nine months. It's the only job I've ever had where I wanted to go in on my day off. We had so much fun there. Uh... When we would have 1,500 people packed into that theater for a double bill of uh, Mildred Pierce and Jezebel, or I think our biggest crowd was maybe for the African Queen and the Lion in Winter. And it seemed like all 1,500 of them would come out and want popcorn and coffee, and there would be six of us behind the, the concession counter uh, there in the lobby of the Castro, and just moving like, like ballet dancers uh, so fast, just grabbing coffee and popcorn. And, and at some point, I think we just removed the coffee pot and we just stick cups one after another under the, the funnel as it dripped out. And then just this total state of exhaustion when the intermission was over and they'd go in. It was so much fun. One night, we, they held a, a, a special, I think it was a midnight screening of a notorious unseen film called Cocksucker Blues by the, the photographer and filmmaker Robert Frank. Uh, it's his, his profile of the Rolling Stones on tour, and the Stones had uh, somehow blocked it from being shown in theaters, but uh, somebody had gotten a hold of it, and, and they had a special late-night screening, and I thought, boy, I'm going to go down for that. And so I was walking in, and there was a line around the block, 
And one of my coworkers, Charlie, a big Hawaiian guy, grabbed me and said, there's no way you're coming in here and not working. And so our job, being the two biggest guys at the theater, was to stand at the door and take uh, whiskey bottles and cans of beer away from the, uh, the audience as they walked in. And we filled up a couple of trash cans with, with booze bottles. And then I got to sneak in and see the film. And it's the only film I ever saw that made me not want to be a rock star. I don't think I've seen that film, but by uttering its title, you've just made this uh, episode into an explicit podcast episode. It'll be my first. Well, you can, you can, you can <laughs> beat me if you like. I'll understand this is normal, so we do have our standards. It's normal, but is it, is it usual? Well, haven't heard that one before, Andy. I, I just yesterday um, ordered a movie that relates to probably the most traumatic movie-going moment of my life when I was a little kid. They used to have Saturday matinees at the Rialto Theater in South Pasadena, and the Rialto has since become a almost legendary theater. It pops up in, in movies periodically. It, it was the, the theater where Tim Robbins goes to see Bicycle Thieves uh, before he, he kills the fellow in the parking lot in Robert Altman's film, The Player. Right. And it was just on... Uh, Boom, uh, what's Swingtown, uh, the CBS TV series. Uh, the Molly Parker character goes to the Rialto Theater for a screening of Deep Throat. Uh, so it's this beautiful little theater, and they used to have these all-day matinees with two feature films and cartoons and a serial, and and the bad kids would take alarm clocks and, and set them under one seat and then go sit someplace else in the theater, and so midway through the movie, the alarm clock would go off and drive people <laughs> crazy. But I'd been to uh, see this... this uh, fairly violent movie, an Anthony Mann Western called The Man from Laramie with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, when it was over, uh, you know, I think another film started up, but I left because I was supposed to be picked up, and whoever was supposed to pick me up was late, and I really wanted to go back into the theater and see whatever was coming up next, and I'd been a little kid, I didn't realize you could just talk to somebody and they would let you in. So I snuck in when somebody's back was turned and they came into the theater and grabbed me and threw me out and it just traumatized me. And so uh, yesterday online I just ordered a, a DVD of The Man from Laramie to see if it it might be therapeutic to watch it again. Movies back in the 1950s played practically on a loop. Uh, there's There's an expression people will still use where they'll say, this is where I came in, meaning it's time to leave. But essentially it goes back to the days when people would go to the movies without really knowing at what time a particular show started. Uh, they would just go because they would expect there to be a newsreel and a, you know, and sometimes you'd just go in in the middle of the feature and you would watch it through and then you would watch the newsreel and the cartoon and the beginning of the feature and say, this is where I came in. Right, we did that with double features. You know, there was one of the two films that we definitely wanted to see, so we arrived at whatever time before or after and watched the end of the of the previous feature right. and then watched the one we came to see, and then there was often a discussion. Do you want to stay and see the beginning of right. that other film? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I, I think up, up until maybe the 1950s, they didn't run the showtimes of films in the newspaper. They might put just the starting time, you know, uh, program starts at seven o'clock or whatever. But if there was, you know, a double feature and, and then you know a reshowing, um, you would just wander in at you know some particular point and make sure you saw the one you wanted to see. My dad always said change seats between features. Uh, he said do it for your eyes. 
Because what, what you're doing is you're focusing on that screen. You're not focusing on a distant vista and a close-up. You're just focused on that screen. So your eye, unless you look down, which you're also supposed to do, at your hand or something nearby every once in a while, your focus just stays locked in one spot. Yeah, you know, if you're sitting off to the side and your eye darts left to right, the right side of the screen is going to be further away if you're sitting to the left and so forth. Right. But uh, the, the idea is that it's very fatiguing for your eyes to sit, just as we sit and look at our computer screens and sit and look at our TVs. It's the illusion that we're looking at all these things at different focus, but we're just looking at an object or a surface. And so my dad always said, switch uh, seats so that <laughs> you know, at least you'll be fixed on a different focal length for the next hour and a half. I never have heard that before. That's good advice. If you have any stories about odd things that have happened to you in movie theaters, um, please email me via my website, and I'll read your email on a future episode. As for me, I have a few more days here in Santa Cruz, and then it's back to foggy San Francisco. Listen for next week's episode, and thank you very much for listening. Bye. Rights Reserved, Andy Moore, Treasure Trove Productions.